stay hungry, stay foolish. <laughs> All right, man, let's do this. There's a painful gap between what people want and what people actually do. The disconnect between want and do has been blamed on a lot of things. But mostly we blame it on ourselves. We internalize the cultural message. It's our fault. Our guest today is here to tell us it is not our fault. Creating positive change isn't as hard as you think. And when it comes to change, tiny is mighty. We welcome founder of the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University and author of Tiny Habits, BJ Fogg. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be talking to you. It's fantastic to have you on the show, BJ. It's really, it's such an important book. I was struck by firstly the simplicity of the message, but then I thought, this has taken this man decades to get it so simple. And I loved in particular your shift from product to people. I'd love you to share the, the genesis of your work. Well, you know, to me, it seems quite linear. I mean, going way back to where I was an undergraduate for seven years, taking any class I felt like taking, and eventually got a degree in English. But one thing led to another. So the, you know, a degree in English now to helping thousands and thousands of people create habits to me seems like a straight line, but I know it seems very odd to outsiders. Let's start with your early work, BJ, because I I love the fact that right one of the goals of this show, as is evident from the books behind me, is to bring new information to the world. But you tell us that doesn't always lead to change, and you call it the information action fallacy. So there is this thing that people often believe that's not true, and that's if you provide information, that will then change somebody's attitude or belief which will then change their behavior. Therefore, if you want to change behavior, all you have to do is provide information. And that doesn't work very well. There are rare times it works, but for the most part, information alone does not cascade down to lasting behavior change. And I wanted to bring it to something, BJ, because we talked about this before we came on air, is your shift from product to people, because you were hugely instrumental in so many of the products that have been brought to market. For example, Instagram only after 18 months of release was bought for a billion dollars by Facebook seemed mad at the time. But now it's worth an absolute fortune. I'd love if you shared these stories and your work on products. I actually don't. I mean, I, it's interesting you, you put it that way. And I think that's accurate, like from product to people, but I don't think of my own work in that way. Yes, it's true. Uh, the co-founder of Instagram was a student in my class, and we really focused on simplicity in the class. I mean, the great technique I've taught people is simplicity. I mean, there's not, you know, there's not like these sneaky, tricky things I teach people. It's really make things easy to do. And, and the work that I did to understand how computers could be designed uh, the research on that to say, hey, this is going to happen, people, whether I study this or not, whether we talk about this or not, it's going to happen. And so I think the ability to see what was coming down the road 10, 15 years in advance 
helped me study and teach things that I think were relevant, uh, would be relevant. They weren't so much at the time. I mean, when my book Persuasive Technology came out in 2002, and it was mostly written like 1999 and 2000, the, re the response to that was a gigantic yawn, like, <laughs> like nobody, nobody really cared. And I was like, wait, this is a book talking about the potentials and pitfalls in the future. Computers, machines will be designed to change human behavior. And we need to use that responsibly. And we need to create policy to stop irresponsible use. But nobody really cared until about 2016, when the election in the US was apparently manipulated and that's something I talked about to the FTC in the US in 2006. So wow. 10 years earlier, I predicted that. And I said, we're going to have these kinds of problems. But so when it comes to innovation, you can be too far ahead of the curve. And on one hand, it's interesting to be able to see things others don't. On the other hand, it's really frustrating, especially in this case. Um, so I really do think of my work always looking at humans and helping humans be happier and healthier. In my dissertation at Stanford, I have 10 pages in the back where it's like, I dropped this scenario. There was this device that I called Team Fit that helped this character, Sue, get healthier. So I, I designed that in 1996, but now we're seeing it today, those kinds of things like Peloton and so on emerge. So really all of my, so I don't think from product to people, I think of it's always been about people for me and how do we help people be happier and healthier and how do we use whatever tools we have available. Uh, earlier on, it was technology and computers. And now it's just really about simplicity and helping people design habits that really stick and really help them. Wow, I, I call what you go through there called the Cassandra curse because of the Greek goddess who could predict the future, but nobody would believe her. <laughs> and and it, we see it in innovation so many times. I think Einstein said, if the idea isn't quite crazy enough, it isn't breakthrough. So that's my way of saying congrats for being so far ahead of the curve. I'm finally I'm happy the curve has caught up and that your you've your work has been recognized. I mean, you are the as as so many people talk about you, the forefather of behavioral technology, behavioral habits, understanding them deeply. So uh, this show and our audience tip the hat to you for that as well, PJ. But there's a there's a quote I, I loved, and I wanted to quote it to get us into how habits changed your life. And it's from C.S. Lewis. He said, good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. And I that quote sprung to mind as I read your work, because tiny habits add up like compound, compound interest. And they are actually the culmination that is your life. That's what your life is. You've experienced this firsthand, the transformational impact of habits on your life. For sure. You know, I I had read a lot of C.S. Lewis, but I'd never read that. So or I don't remember reading that. So thank you for sharing. You, uh, like, like I talk about in my book, Tiny Habits, there was a moment in my life or a period in my life where I really felt like things were slipping from me. I wasn't sleeping well. My health was declining. I was gaining weight. I wasn't sure I was focused on the right projects at work. And 
I was like, okay, BJ, now is the time to get on top of this. Or you may not be able to turn the corner. I mean, because you're in your 40s at that point. Um, now, you can turn the corner at any age. But I had this feeling that, like, now's the time. I have to do this or I won't be able to figure it out. And that led to me really goofing around with my own behavior, my own habits, and discovering that you can create habits faster and easier than people think. And then they accumulate and they become just part of who you are. Uh, and then I started teaching it in 2011, the five-day course. It's still out there. It's still free. Thousands of people do it. And it worked for other people too. And so that became something I just kept doing week after week, coaching people in tiny habits, measuring the results, optimizing the program. And that went on and on and on, not knowing that you and I would be talking today about tiny habits in my book and the impact it's had. It's amazing. And it's why I quoted that C.S. Lewis quote, because you never know where they'll bring you. And so many entrepreneurs listen to this show, which habits, your habit formation techniques are interesting for products, but also that for them as founders and for them getting the most out of every day, I think it's so essential. But I, wa I wanted to emphasize something because you went through a dark period. Unfortunately, may he rest in peace, you lost your nephew, you went through a, a dark period with your sleep, and you wanted to work on your weight. And I wanted to share one of the most important ones. And it's I'm jumping a little bit to the end here, which is the celebrate habit, because I've said to this to so many people, BJ, since I read the book, how important it is because you actually looked at the depth of research here of the dopamine connect and the reward prediction error. I'd love if you'd share this part. Uh, let me start with the basic description and then we can get more into you know, what happens in the brain. Everybody, what you hear about repetition creating habits is not accurate. So scratch that from your memory. What wires behaviors into us, what wires habits is the emotion that we feel when we do that behavior. And you can think of this as self uh, as reinforcement. So emotions that you feel will reinforce or strengthen the likelihood of the behavior. Now you see this all around you. You see it in your pets. Your pets do something, you make them feel successful by giving them a treat. That's how you train them. You see it in your kids. You see it in your spouse and yourself and your employees. You see it all over the place. So it's really not any more complicated than that. When you do a behavior, let's say I write with this white marker here, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that was great. I was very successful using this. That reinforces me using the white marker. If I use something and feel unsuccessful, then it's like, well, I'm not trying that again, right? So you can think of what we call celebration in tiny habits as self-reinforcement. You are purposely causing an emotion of success. Uh, so let's say I want to drink more water. As I'm filling the glass of water, I might think, oh my gosh, this is going to help me be more successful when I surf in 30 minutes. Good for me, right? So if, I, if you can feel that emotion intensely, it will accelerate the rate of habit formation. What's happening is emotions serve many purposes. One of them is to signal that our prediction about something was wrong. So if I think, oh, this pen will be fine, it'll be whatever, and I write with it, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's really smooth and my writing looks terrific. That's what's called a reward prediction error. It's not a great term, I didn't come up with the term, <laughs> but the response, so by reward, it means what I expected to get. 
was different. So, oh my gosh, this pen helps me write better. Then my brain, so I have this reaction, this emotion, this feeling of, wow, I didn't expect that. Then your brain takes note and has to do with regulation of dopamine and it adjusts and it makes the use of the pen or filling the water glass more likely to happen in the future. So basically the emotion, and I'm going to get back to, I mean, this isn't technically what happens, but the emotion makes you go, oh my gosh, I didn't expect this pen to be so good. I feel super successful using this pen. I should do this more in the future. It's beautiful. And you know, the one of the things I absolutely love that will bring it home to everybody is you talked about a kid learning to walk and, and, the, and the, the parents like going, good, good girl. Yeah, that's great. Well done. And, and I think we, we think about that. And I, I went to myself, I, th you know, I thought I, I love the, the one of the huge benefits of this show is talking to great people like you and the dots connect for me. And I thought back to Ken Blanchard's one minute manager. And he said, if you're going to reward somebody with a, a tap on the back, or uh, a reprimand, you need to do it at the point of behavior. And I thought when I read your work, I was like, that's why. And I thought about a piece of pottery, BJ, and that it's like, that's a potential habit, put it into the kiln, let it bake, and you have to do it at the point of making it. And that is a huge part of it. I, I really like how you've described that. And this is one reason I don't use the word reward as a technical term in my book or in my research at Stanford, because often people think of, oh, I'm going to you know, drink water every morning for 30 days. And at the end of the 30 days, I'm going to buy myself a new surfboard. That will be my reward. Okay. In ordinary English, that's okay. But from a technical perspective, reward does not mean that. Reward is what happens right then. So if I use the word reward, like, hey, make sure there's a reward for the behavior, people may be thinking, oh, I'll buy a surfboard in 30 days, that'll be my reward. No, that's an incentive, that's a prize. It's not technically a reward. So to help create clarity for people, like what they should really be doing, you shouldn't think that a surfboard 30 days from now will wire in the habit. <laughs> it may motivate you to keep going, but it doesn't change the brain. Uh, so. I don't use that word. Instead, I talk about self-reinforcement. Uh, I talk about celebration. I talk about emotions, you know, on demand. So as you're doing the behavior immediately after, your brain has to connect the behavior with the emotion, with the feeling of success specifically. It's so helpful for, I mentioned for children, for example, I, I, I said to you off air that I've started using it already with my kids because you make it so and you do a great job of this, man, you, you make it so simple that you know, it's it's nearly impossible not to get it, you have to get it. But I wanted to talk about the tiny part, because I'll give you an example last night, uh, my son is he's only 10, he's learning how to do press ups, right? And he's gonna I'm do 10 press ups. And I'm like, No, no, do one press. up, And he's like, No, I can do 10. And I was like, No, do one, and maybe do some bonus points, do two and get some extra credit. And I thought of you, because one of the times your epiphanies was when you were going through a dark moment, your sleep wasn't great. And you looked, you didn't want to look up in the mirror. And you're like, I'm going to do it. And then you went, I'm going to do a tiny habit, which is flossing my teeth. Yeah, and it really did. It started with one drop of sunscreen and flossing one tooth. The sunscreen, they're just, it did, I didn't need another example in the book. But I literally would put on one drop of sunscreen and, you know, say good for me and floss one tooth and say victory what and i think you got it 
right where many people don't get it right. The often people assume that you start tiny, like one push up or press up, and then you go two and three and four and you raise the bar. No, that's not the tiny habits method. That's the old fashioned method that will, you will eventually fail. If you get up to 25, 30, 50, you will eventually fail. That habit will break. In tiny habits, you set the bar low. And even on day one, you can do more like you instructed your son, but you think of those extra push-ups, press-ups as extra credit. So you don't have to just say, oh, I'm only gonna floss one tooth and stop. You floss one tooth and if you want to do more, you, you can and you count it as extra credit. And then even years from now, the habit is still, the bar is still low, it's just one tooth. And so it allows you to be very reliable in doing the habit. And number two, it allows you to give yourself acknowledgement that you're going above and beyond. And that helps people see, uh, let, let me shift here to identity. When people think, oh, I'm the kind of person who goes above and beyond, even if it's just one tooth, then that sense of you're a person who does more than required can go into other aspects of your life, whether it's how you uh, keep the house nice and tidy, whether it's how you uh, work with your colleagues, whether it's how you contribute in the community, all those kinds of things. So there isn't, it's not as simple as, or it's not as old fashioned as I'm going to do one push up next week. I'm going to do two next week. We have another three. No, it's this kind of radical idea. You make it super, super tiny and easy and you always can do more when you want, but you don't have to. So you mentioned there the, the kind of self deprecating terms that we use the, the negative talk, the trash talk and the judgment of ourselves. This is a huge part of what you wanted to change with people and with their habits. It was a surprise for me, um, and it sounds naive now, but uh, I was living in Silicon Valley, Stanford, within a community of people that were ambitious and quite successful. And if they had insecurities, they didn't share them very readily. And so as I started teaching uh, Tiny Habits to people around the world in the five-day program in 2011, uh, about four months in, and at that point, I probably taught a, a couple thousand people, coached them personally through email. It took a lot of time doing this. But then I heard back from a woman who said, BJ, you have helped me see I've endured a lifetime of self-trash talk. And that was, that was such a big moment for me because I was like, oh my gosh, what's going, I mean, and then I started reading the other emails and understanding people around the world in a way that I couldn't understand them from my little bubble at Stanford and Silicon Valley, where this is where most people are at. Most people are really hard on themselves and they do criticize themselves. And the idea of praising yourself or self-reinforcing can strike people as really, really unusual, but they're very, very good at criticizing themselves, you know? So it's like, okay, I need to help people understand that not only is it healthy to say good for me, I did a good job, but that ability to self-reinforce is what helps you create habits quickly and easily. And, and it, it's still a little bit of an uphill challenge. I mean, there's a lot of resistors where people are like, oh, you know, why should I say good for me just flossing one tooth? And some people get it really quickly. Some people resist, and there's a whole bunch of people in the middle. 
And uh, I thought it's, it's important as well, just on the celebrate, your, your one is awesome, fist pump. And that, that it, has to be, it has to be authentic, right, to you, because you have to search, uh, search your memory bank and go, firstly, when's the last time I did that? But remember the way you actually celebrate. And you mentioned here the, the example of your uncle. Yeah. <laughs> so my uncle Brent, who's a lawyer and, and, you know, a tough character. Um, when I was teaching this at my family reunion, so I have a huge family and he didn't like the celebration piece. And so after I did my little thing, I sat down with him and, and it was a little while later. It's like, oh my gosh, I do have a celebration. I say bingo. So during the course of his work, when he figures out how to deal with some legal case or whatever, he says, bingo. And so he did recognize. Let me share one that happened this morning for me. Um, so I'm here in Maui. I surf every morning. The waves were better than average today, which is good. And so I'm practicing turning on the waves, cutting back and forth. Like you might go down moguls, bam, 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 bam. And I'm practicing that. And there was one wave where I thought I didn't especially like I thought I was going to fall, but I didn't. I was able to make the cuts and I was like, awesome beach. Right. When I finished <laughs> the wave, I'm like, awesome beach. I didn't do this, but because I, I it's stand up paddle surfing. So I'm so but I self reinforce. Now it's natural, um, but the function of that the behaviors I did to be able to make those turns and not fall in, I want that to wire into my brain. And so reckon, and you've probably seen this in sports, you know, when people do an especially good uh, pass or move or score or whatever, bam, they, I don't think that's just to show off. I think high performing people have learned how to self reinforce, whether it's bingo or awesome beach or this, in order to help them wire in that behavior, that action that they that, that they wanted to become more commonplace. So hopefully soon this kind of surfing, I won't be reinforcing anymore because it will be a habit. I'll have that wired in. And so just like in tiny habits, you don't have to celebrate something forever. Once it wires in, you don't, I mean, the function of celebration is to uh, to wire it into your brain and then you don't celebrate forever. So I kind of went off a little bit, but I'm hoping that you and other people here see the connection to how athletes have naturally celebrated. And my hypothesis is without that, they would not have become top tier athletes. It's a funny one, man, because it's one of the things that absolutely drove me down the path that I'm on of understanding the mind and transformation in every way, because it got me there. But then in a way, I stopped and and I started to focus on the negative. And I know we have a, a negativity bias because I wanted to use that to tee up this essential part is that most adults in particular, we are so we're our worst critics and we rarely find something to celebrate. We lo look back on our day usually and go all the things we didn't get done. You talked about the, this lady, Linda, and I thought this is such an important message, BJ, to share. And then maybe we'll share some of the BMAP framework. But I'd love to share this, Linda, because this is so common. The good news for everybody out there, you know, the chatter in your head that's negative, the, the habit of self-criticism, that can change. That can change. And you can get better at not just saying good for me, 
but recognizing the good things uh, that you're doing or that are happening to you. And one habit that seems to have a really big effect on this goes like this. After I put my head on the pillow at night, I will think of one thing I'm grateful for during the day. Now, that sounds really simple, and it is, but what it seems to do is if you know that at the end of the day, you're gonna have to think of something that you're grateful for, it seems like some part of your brain is watching for that throughout the day. So you prime yourself to look for the positives. And so if people are struggling with either a sense of helplessness or a lack of control or a lot of self-criticism or a feeling of like, man, it's been a terrible year, try the habit of at night, find the moment. It could be uh, as you brush your teeth at night or after your head hits the pillow or whatever, but to, th to call out some positive thing in your day or something that you're grateful for and see how that affects how you process the days that come after that. Yeah, I love that one, man. I, I was thinking about that, how and, and it, the, the beauty of your work and it, just reading the book even is that you you start to examine everything and it becomes almost like a game and you go, there you go. For example, I cycle into the into the studio and on the way I get a coffee. It's part of my cycle. It's it's like the incentive, you know, but in a way I've made it a meanwhile habit. <laughs> so it's like, as I cycle, I will get a coffee. And that's incentivized me to get in early before because I don't want to be in the coffee queue in the middle of a pandemic. When there's a queue, I want to get there when it opens. <laughs> so I, I started examining those things. But based on the one of negativity, I love the way you can flip it around. And I, and by the way, I noticed the way a lot of the habits are named around your, your ecosystem. So we'll get to the Maui habit at the moment. But I loved Pearl habit. So Pearl Habit is a type of tiny habit recipe. So you pick something negative that happens and you use that to be a prompt for something positive. Let me share, this is not in the book, but this goes to Linda, who you talked about. Linda is a character in the book and it's my sister. You don't know that till the last chapter. I'm sorry if I spoiled it for readers, but Linda's been through so much awful stuff. Um, one of her Pearl Habits, and now she really is on the forefront of this thing called Pearl Habits. How do you take negative stuff and turn it into something of beauty or value, like a pearl? And um, earlier this year, her husband was in a care facility for Alzheimer's. And, what she, and it was really, really, really hard on her to visit him. And just sad in so many ways. So she started this after she would leave the facility and sit in her car after seeing her husband. Um, she would bow her head and give thanks for the people there that were taking care of him. Okay. So this was a negative thing, visiting her husband and seeing him decline, 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 decline. It was hard on her. So she then connected this new this new behavior, which became a habit of gratitude. And she says that totally changed how she viewed the visits to her husband and she wouldn't dread them and she wouldn't skip them when there were convenient excuses. She was, it just changed. It was so, so if you find the right tiny thing to change in the right way, it can have these big kind of effects. And so the irritation could be a dog barking next door, you know, so after I hear the dog bark, 
I will think of how lucky I am to own my own home or something like that. Here in, and this is in the book. Yeah. Um, You're fine. The, the air, the air can hear it. Turn it off. Yes. The air, it wasn't in this room, but it was in the, this is my Zoom room in our Maui home. There's it's great. another room, the bedroom, where the air conditioner would click on at night, which would wake me up. So instead of it aggravating me, I figured out, oh, that will become my prompt to just like relax through here, you know, through my neck and shoulders. And it became a reminder to relax, which actually helped me sleep better. So rather than me being annoyed by this click of the air conditioner, it became something positive that helped me relax and get better sleep. That's great. So, and you can spin these negative, it's it's negative things that happen to you or negative reactions like, oh, somebody's taken too long in line and I'm in a hurry. You can take those and turn them into something of value and maybe even something of beauty. And that's why I named them Pearl Habits. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, and, it, you know, the, the beauty is that, that your book as well gives us a narrative to frame things. So one of the things I always thought about is those negative people in your life sometimes they're teaching you what you don't want. And that's the and I went, that's a pearl habit in a way because you go, well, there, there has to be a character like that in my life. And I, I'd said this to my son, that imagine you were casting a play and you're the you're the star of the play. And you have to cast an antihero or a villain like Joker and Batman. And I was like, you're gonna have a Joker in your life. But just think how horrible it would be to play that role. You're Batman. He's Joker. And he said, Oh, my God, Dad. Yeah. And I was like, the poor guy, right? And I was like, that's a pearl habit in a way that I can if I can give him a narrative to put it around. It's a great skill to have for life. But I, I mentioned the Maui habit again. And, you know, you, you talked about going to bed with the fan. There's also getting up and we we've again, I've heard this, but you've done the deep research behind the brain and everything to understand why this works. I, I, I know less about why the Maui habit works than the other stuff. I just know it doesn't work. Um, but I think it has to do with setting your intention and priming yourself to make it a great day. So the Maui habit, everybody, is this. After your feet touch the floor in the morning, you say, it's going to be a great day. So first thing in the morning. Uh, some people like saying the phrase, I'm going to make it a great day. Uh, but any variation of that where you're, so we get up really early and, you know, I'm in Maui and I did it. It's kind of funny, you know, that I do the Maui habit in Maui, but that's what I named it. So I put my feet on the floor and say, it's going to be a great day. If I don't think it's going to be a great day. And there are days where I think, man, this is going to be a hard one. Or it's going to be a terrible day. I say, it's going to be a great day somehow. <laughs> so I, I try to be real. And I just know that from so many people responding to that, how it helps them. Um, and I do think it has to do with, yes, setting an intention, but also you are then framing the rest of the day like, oh, how do I make, you know, I said it's going to be a great day. So then when, for example, uh, oh, <laughs> I go out to the kitchen and the coffee maker has spilled coffee all over the counter. Well, I could react really negatively or I could kind of just chuckle. And if I've said it's going to be a great day, I'm probably going to just chuckle and clean up, move on kind of thing. So it is a it's the only only habit in the whole book that I prescribe. 
every, you know, there's 300 examples in the back in the appendix, but there's only one that I say, everybody do this or do some variation of this. You know, early in your day, say it's going to be a great day or I'm going to make it a great day and see what happens. The tiniest of the tiny habits. Um, I, I wanted to mention that we had um, your Stanford colleague, Robert Sapolsky on the show, and he talked about the the, the neuroscience of willpower. So essentially, it's like the, the way we, we riffed over it was it's like you have a, a limited amount of, of willpower juice, and it, it fades as the day go through. And by the way, one of the things he talked about was they discovered this through looking at patients with Alzheimer's and dementia, that they would remember their loved ones less in the afternoon, in the morning, they were most lucid. And I thought about this when you talked about motivation and willpower get a lot of airtime. But you say the problem is that they are shape shifters by nature, which makes them unreliable. In the traditional way of thinking about behavior change, people have focused almost entirely on motivation and willpower and recognizing that motivation is not that reliable. It goes up and down over time. Uh, and we're motivated for different things at different moments of the day and different times of the year and even different days of the week. Um, and just saying, hey, the way that you make a habit happen reliably is not through some magic thing you do with motivation. Instead, it's through ability. It's by making it really easy to do. So you, then you don't have to worry so much about the natural shifts in motivation, what I call the motivation wave. It goes up and down and up and down. And if you make it really easy to do, even when the motivation sags, you can still floss one tooth. You can still pour a glass of water. Uh, you can still call your mom on the way home from surfing easy to do. Then we use that as a segue to share the anatomy of a habit, because there's an ABCs for this, which is anchor behavior and celebration. And I just say a disclaimer, I did not mean it to be ABC. It just happened that way. <laughs> and I sometimes when I see those kinds of things, the spell words and stuff, I'm like, okay, how much did you stick to the integrity of the concept in order to get this work? You okay. did say that you don't like them by nature. You don't like No, I really don't because yeah. I think it can be contrived. Well, I studied rhetoric. I studied rhetoric and I know there's rhetorical power and little things that rhyme and little things that spell. And I know those can be tricks, but this is this ABC is not a trick. And by the way, yeah. I only noticed it now looking at my notes. I, I actually didn't because you didn't call it out in the book. I went, oh, no, no, it, it, it's not it, it's not what I'm hanging my hat on. But for everybody listening or viewing, A stands for anchor. And I'll come back to this. B is behavior. C is habit. Let's start with B. B is the behavior you want to become a habit. OK, a habit is a behavior you do automatically. So let's say pour a glass of water. That's the B. The anchor is a routine you already do that you're attaching the new habit to. So pouring a glass of water, well, if I start the coffee maker every morning, I already do that, that can be my anchor that I attach pouring the water. So it's early in the morning, I start the coffee. So after I start the coffee maker, then I pour a glass of water. Anchor, behavior, AB. And then C is celebration where you and awesome. bam yeah so you somehow you find a way and there's well over 100 ways to do this to help yourself feel successful so the habit wires in so in the future as tired as you might be or whatever you come out of the kitchen you start the coffee maker you pour the glass of water 
And notice it's not even drink the glass of water. Drinking is extra credit. What I'm doing right now in my own life, not only pouring a glass of water, but I will either squeeze a lemon or a lime and put it in the water because somehow I feel like that's really good for me. So every morning I've got this great little press I, and the lemons just grow on the property and limes too. So I just put it in the water and that, <laughs> I love that habit. Right. It's, it's, it's such a great way to start the morning. So another great habit, BJ, and one which is, I, again, I used it, man, and I did the wall with my son, the wall press. When, when you drink the water is one thing, but then when you get rid of the water, you attached on another habit there. This one's fantastic. So this is, does not have a special name. It should, maybe. And it goes like this. After I pee, I will do two push-ups. And I've done this for years, right? So peeing is the anchor. It's the thing that we all do on a regular basis. And the new habit I wanted was doing push-ups throughout the day. And I don't do it at Stanford in the public restrooms. And I don't do it in hotels anymore. I used to. Um, but when I'm at home, some people have taken that and then they'll do squats. They'll do two squats. Anything like that seems to be a gateway to doing other types of exercises. And it could even just be two press-ups, as you would say, against the bathroom counter. And if you want to do more, do more. Um, so it's just this great moment. After you pee, there's this great moment to do something to improve your strength or your flexibility. And it doesn't have to be a huge thing. And over time, you do get a lot stronger or a lot more flexible if that's what you choose. Yeah, and it's great. And, and when I thought about that, I, I was like, well, actually, my career in professional sport was just a collection of loads of different ones. I kept adding in new ones. I, I did the lemon water, by the way, I did all that stuff, making my own isotonic drinks. And you just kept adding on a new one to that one and to that one. And then all of a sudden, you're like, wow, I've, I've changed shape here. But it, it's I just cannot overemphasize how important your work is. And I want to thank you massively for it. I pulled a quote to finish on that I absolutely love from the book, BJ. And when I'm reading it out, I would love if you thought about your final message and also where people can find you, etc. So I'll read this out. And then I'll hand over to you to close today's show. You say, we should be dreamy about aspirations, but not about the behaviors that will get us there. Behaviors are grounded, concrete. They are the handholds and footholds that get you up the rock face. Your path to the top is your own, and you choose your behaviors according to the particular rock you are climbing. Beautiful. So BJ Fogg, it's been an absolute pleasure. Where can people find you, your work, and what's your final message for today? Uh, BJFogg.com and tinyhabits.com. Those are the starting points that will take you elsewhere. Um, and I guess my parting message is like the two high level concepts in the book that I think apply to innovators innovating and also in your life. Number one, help yourself do what you already want to do. If you're creating products, help people do what they already want to do. If you're designing for lasting change or engagement or ha habits that endure, you have to focus on helping yourself or others do what they already want to do. That's number one. Number two, help yourself feel successful. We talked some about celebration and emotions. You can probably see why. Um, so if you're changing your own life or helping other people or creating products, 
The second key is to help people feel successful or help yourself feel successful. And with those two things, you can kind of, I'm going to say something controversial. You can set aside so many theories and models and mysterious things about human behavior. If you're designing for lasting change or engagement, it comes down to those two things. And if you do those two things, that's what you should be focused on. And that's all, I guess that would be, you know, the two high level concepts, help yourself do what you already want to do, help yourself feel successful, boom, and you're on your way. Founder of the Behavior Design Lab in Stanford University and author of Tiny Habits, BJ Fogg. Awesome. Um, thank you so much. Great to have you, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you.